0: Our scripture reading is from Galatians chapter 3, verse 15 through 19a. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God, so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning and welcome to Brookside. When I was uh, getting ready at the end of, uh, or at the very beginning of April to head out on a 10-day trip to visit our ministry partners in northeastern Kenya, I was working with one of our ministry assistants on some of the logistics for that trip. And and I received an email from, from Lori, our ministry assistant, uh, with a number of items that we needed to address as a team. And, you know, when you're planning an international trip to a developing part of the world, there's always... A few unique logistics you have to deal with. Make sure you get extra vaccinations and uh, make sure you've got your malaria pills stocked up. And uh, is your phone going to work there? Power outlets, converters, those kinds of things. But I was, so I was expecting all those in the email. But the item number two on the list of things that she sent in the email was, was, I have to admit, a little bit sobering. She writes, leaving the country can trigger the need to put your life in order. And then she says, so here's some things to consider. Last will and testament, power of eternity, and healthcare proxy. And I I remember reading that email thinking, wait, does Lori think I'm going to die on this trip? and I mean, I, I guess that's a possibility, but something about seeing that in, in black and white, make sure you have your, your will and testament set up and you've got your health care power of eternity all, uh, all set up, made, made that reality come home a little bit starker. Um, and, and thankfully, though, my last will and testament weren't, weren't necessary. I'm, I'm, I made it back. I'm, I'm here with you this morning, so that wasn't a, a necessary requirement on this trip that time. But it did get me thinking about wills and, and, and how they work. And, and how do you become an heir in a will? How do you become an heir? How do you receive an inheritance from a will? And, and think about that for a moment. And, and I don't mean just the, the mechanism of, oh, well, someone has to die, and then, then I get the inheritance. But how do you actually get written into the will in the first place? How do you actually become a part of the will in the first place? Well, you become a part of an inheritance. You make it into the will by someone making a promise. Uh, making a promise that, that when they die, they will give you their, their action figure collection or their, their you know, complete set of Beatles vinyl record collection, whatever it might be. Maybe if you're really fortunate, uh, they'll, they'll promise you some money in the will. But really all a will is, is just a, a legal record of a promise. In many ways, actually, much of the legal profession is is just that work of helping people make and keep promises. I had someone describe, a a lawyer describe his work to me that way one time. But really what I do is help people make and keep promises. We have a lot of you here who work in the law field in various ways, whether it's attorneys or paralegals, that kind of work. That's what you do. You help people make and keep promises. And, And a will is a promise, Uh, And the only way that you become an heir, the only way that you receive an inheritance is to believe the promise. This is what we're going to see in the passage this morning, that only a promise can make you an heir. Only a promise can make you an heir. And, And this is the illustration that Paul is using here for how we relate to God. He's saying that God has made a promise And that it's only by that promise that we can receive the hope and life that he offers to us. The only way that we become heirs, the only way that we receive that life and that hope is by his promise. And that's what we're calling this series in this book called Galatians. That's what we're calling it, No Other. This whole little uh, book, it's a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to a group of churches in a region called Galatia. His whole point in this letter is that there is no other hope. There is no other good news, no other life than that which is promised to us by Jesus. Only a promise can make you an heir. Only a promise can can make you an heir. And what we're going to see as we walk through this passage together, the one that India just read for us, is that those who are heirs, those who are heirs believe the promise, they learn from the tutor, and they celebrate the inheritance. So that's how we're going to walk through this text this morning. We're going to see that those who are heirs, they believe the promise, they learn from the tutor, and they celebrate the inheritance. So let's take a look together uh, first at this idea of believing the promise. So in verses 15 through 18 in the passage, Paul introduces this this new illustration for the, the same point that he's been making for several chapters now. And that is this call to believe the promise. The point he's been making is that the only way to be included in God's plan, to be included in his people and what he's doing is to relate to him by faith. And you see, in Galatia at this time, in these churches, there were people who were saying that, that non-Jewish Christians had to become like Jews in order to really be a part of the Jesus movement. You see, Jesus himself was a Jew. He had come out of this family of Abraham, this descendant line. But he opened up the God's plan to, to all people. Paul is saying that you don't have to become a Jew in order to be a Christian. The only way that anyone becomes a Christian is by placing their faith in Jesus, not by keeping Jewish laws. That's the point that Paul is making throughout this letter. But here in verse 15, he introduces a new illustration, a new metaphor to try and help his readers understand what he's getting at. And the illustration is that of a a covenant or of a will. I think the, the Christian Standard Translation captures this well. Paul writes in verse 15, Brothers and sisters, I'm using a human illustration. No one sets aside or makes additions to a validated human will. Now these promises, the promises were spoken to Abraham. So Paul introduces this idea that his readers would have been familiar with, of a a will or a man-made covenant as an an illustration of what God is doing and how he set out to rescue the world. And specifically, he's using it as an illustration of what he did with with Abraham. Okay, so at this point you may be wondering, okay, maybe who is Abraham and and what does he have to do with, with this, what Paul's saying here? Those are great questions. Um, And we're first introduced to Abraham all the way back in the book of Genesis, the very first book of the Bible. The Bible is a collection of 66 books that all are telling one story that points to Jesus. And the first book of the Bible is Genesis. And it it opens with God recounting how God creates the whole world, the heavens and the earth. That's Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Heavens and earth, when those two words are used together in that way, that's a Bible literature way of saying everything. He created everything that is, the entire universe. But Genesis then also quickly recounts how human beings, the first humans, Adam and Eve, rebelled against God, choosing to define right and wrong for themselves, and in so doing, introducing shame and fear and mistrust and death into the world. They turned away from God and they turned in on themselves, breaking the relationship not only with God but with one another. You see, when you're defining right and wrong for yourself, you can no longer trust that other people around you have the same definition of what is good, it was right, it introduces fear, hiding. And this is what Christians believe is fundamentally wrong with the world. That we do not love God and we do not love our neighbors as we were designed to. And yet God, in his great mercy, sets in motion a plan that takes the whole story of the scriptures to tell a plan to, to rescue his people, to restore the broken world. And he does this through choosing a particular family a family that he will use to bring blessing, his blessing, his goodness to the whole world, to everyone on the face of the earth. And he chooses Abraham, which if you know anything about Abraham, you you realize, wait, this doesn't seem like a great choice, God. If you're trying to Build a great family, a great nation that's going to bring blessing. Because Abraham was really old. When God first comes to him, he's in his 70s. He's really old, and he doesn't have any kids. It's like, huh, okay, God, what are you you going to do with this? You want to build a big family. You want to have a great nation. And you're picking a couple who's old and doesn't have any kids. And yet when God comes to Abraham and tells him this, Abraham believes him. But then in Abraham's story, a lot of time passes. He says, you know, I don't know, God, how, how God is going to do this, but somehow he's made this promise, I trust. But the years go on, and there's still no children. There's not a way forward, and Abraham is starting to question. We read this in Genesis chapter 15. But Abram, that was also another name for Abraham, said, Lord, what can you give me since I'm childless? And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. He says, I don't have any kids. This guy, Eliezer, is one of these guys who works for me. He's going to end up with all my stuff. I don't have any kids of my own. Now the word of the Lord came to him. This one, Eliezer, will not be your heir. Instead, one who comes from your own body will be your heir. And he, God, took Abraham outside and said, Look at the sky, Abraham. And count the stars, if you are able to count them. And then he said to him, your offspring will be that numerous. And Abram believed the Lord. and It was credited to him as righteousness. Abraham believes the promise. And it's on the basis of Abraham believing God's promise that, that God accepts him, that he's in right relationship with God. Not, and this is what Paul's point is all through the book of Galatians, not by obeying the Jewish law. That is not how Abraham came into right relationship with God. Why? Well, because Abraham didn't have the law. Paul's going to go on and say, that didn't come till over 400 years later. The Ten Commandments, all the food laws, the, the, all these laws that are going to come, Abraham didn't have any of that. Abraham, the father of the Jewish faith, didn't have the Jewish law. That's why Paul is introducing him at this key point in Galatians. So now let's come back to Galatians chapter 3, which we heard read earlier. Here's how Eugene Peterson puts it in the message. I think this is really helpful beginning at verse 13, chapter 3. A will, earlier ratified by God, is not annulled by an addendum attached 430 years later, thereby negating the promise of the will. No, this addendum, with its instructions and regulations, has nothing to do with the promised inheritance in the will. This is Paul's point. A right relationship with God always begins by believing his promise, not by obeying the law. A right relationship with God always begins by believing His promise, not by keeping the law. And Paul's point is that this has always been true. God hasn't sort of changed how He relates to people. This was true for Abraham. It was true for Israel even when they had the law. And it's all the more true with the coming of Jesus. And yet, as people who are the descendants of Adam and Eve who carry this brokenness, this this bent inness on ourselves with us. Our posture is to approach God from an earning standpoint. That that somehow we think that if we can just keep all of God's rules, or enough of them, or if we do what He wants, if we don't do what he, He prohibits, then He'll at least sort of leave us alone and let us kind of live the rest of our lives how we want. Or at best, that that maybe he will have to to answer our prayers and give us a good life. But our relationship to God is just that, a relationship. And it begins with a promise. So for example, a, a marriage begins with a promise. That's the basis of the relationship. Just because someone goes out and buys a wedding ring and puts it on their finger doesn't mean that they're they're married to anyone. Someone has to make that promise. You have to make those promises to one another. The, The external sign of the promise, the wedding ring, isn't the basis of the relationship. No, it's just the sign of a promise that's been made. So believe the promise. Do you believe the promise? I mean, do you really believe God's promise. That He has loved you with an everlasting love. That He will come again. That He will set all things right. That He will wipe away every tear from your eye. That He will heal every disease. That He will restore you to what you were always meant to be. Do you believe the promise? See, only a promise, only a promise can make you an heir. But this then raises a really important question as we were moving through the book of Galatians, and, and that is, wait a second, if only a promise can make heirs, if, if we only relate to God by faith, th- then what in the world is the purpose of the law then? Why, did, why do we have the law? Why does this law I- exist if it, if it can't set us right in our relationship with God. If That only happens by faith, by believing the promise. And this is where Paul goes next in his argument here in Galatians. He anticipates and asks that very question, as where India read the Scripture this morning. Why then the law? And this leads us to our next point, that, that those who are heirs, yes, they be, heirs believe the promise, and they also, they learn from the tutor. Now, what do I mean by that language of tutor? Well, it, it, it's another one of the metaphors That Paul is going to use to talk about what the law is. So, Paul makes two main points in this passage about what the law, uh, about the law. Two main points about the law. First is that the law was given long after the promise. That's the first thing he wants us to know. It came 430 years after the promise. And second, that the law is temporary. So, it came after the promise and it's not meant to last forever, it was temporary. So those who are trying to convince the Galatians and anyone who would try to convince us that we we must obey the law or we must become sort of Jewish in order to be Christian, to be a part of God's family, Paul's point is they haven't read their Bible well. They're they're not understanding the big story that God is writing in all the scriptures. Okay, so then what is the purpose of the law? Why does it exist? Well, first, the law reveals our sin. It revealed our brokenness. The the law in one sense, in that sense, it's a lot like an x-ray. So it shows the brokenness of the bone, and that's really important, but but an x-ray doesn't do anything to heal the bone, right? In fact, if if you have a broken bone and and you get an x-ray, and you say, well, I just want to keep shooting x-rays at it to try and fix it. Not only will you not get better, you're actually probably going to get sicker. You're going to get radiation poisoning or you're going to get cancer, right? The, the, the x-ray can reveal what's broken, but it, it, it can't fix it. And, and then Paul introduces a second purpose of the law with, the, with this metaphor of a tutor. A tutor. It gets translated guardian in many of our our English translation, but it's it's actually the Greek word that we get our English word pedagogy from. So if if you're a teacher or you study education, you probably heard that like the pedagogical method or pedagogy. It's just a word that talks about how you teach a subject or an area. The law is a guardian. It's a teacher, a tutor. And in particular, it served this purpose for the Jewish people until Christ came but it still functions as a tutor for us in some ways today. So, so what are the lessons that we learn from the tutor of the law? Well, the first lesson we learn is that the law shows us our problem. So we mentioned just a moment ago, this is the idea of the law as an x-ray. The law shows us our brokenness. It helps us understand why we are in so much pain, why there's so much suffering and loss in the world. The law reveals that, and that's a gift, Again, right if you, if you fall and you have a severe pain in your arm and you go to the doctor, or the urgent care and they put it in an x-ray and it shows that your arm is broken, that in of itself isn't very good news, but it's really helpful, isn't it? You don't rejoice, "Yay, my arm is broken," but it's really helpful to know that that's the problem. It's really helpful. So the law, also called the Torah in the Jewish language, the Jewish Bible, it helps us to understand the brokenness and it helps reveal that we can't, in of ourselves, fix it. And this video from the Bible Project gets at this really well. Take a look.
1: So the story begins with God creating humanity who rebels. And God chooses Abraham to bless all of the nations through his family who end up in slavery down in Egypt, and so God rescues them. Then at Mount Sinai, God makes a covenant with Israel, like an agreement. And all of the laws that Moses gives to Israel are the terms of that agreement. They're like a constitution. And so some of the laws, they're about rituals and customs that set Israel apart from the nations. Other laws are about social justice or morality. And by following these, Israel would show the other nations what God is like. Okay, so the rest of the Torah, is just the complete list of laws that Moses gives Israel? Mm, No, the rest of the Torah just continues the story. And the 613 commands are only a selection from that original constitution. And even these have been broken up and placed at strategic points within the story. Now pay attention because you will see a really clear pattern. Moses gives the first laws to Israel. Don't worship other gods, don't make idols. And then right after that, there's a story of Israel breaking those very laws. Yeah, they worship the golden calf. And so Moses gives some more laws. And then you get more stories of rebellion. Some more laws, rebellion again, some more laws, more rebellion. And you start to see the point. Right, no matter how many laws, they're just going to continue to rebel. So at the conclusion of the Torah's story, Moses gives this final speech to Israel as they prepare to go into their new home. And he tells them, you guys, I know that you're not going to follow all of God's laws. You've proven to me that you're incapable. And Moses says the problem is that their hearts are hard and that they're going to need new transformed hearts if they're ever going to truly follow God's
0: law. So the law shows us our problem. And the second lesson that we learn is that the law also shows us that we can't fix the problem. You see, another lesson that we learn is that the law can't fix the problem. We can't fix the problem. And in fact, the more that we try to obey the law, the more we realize how inadequate we are to obey it. For example, C.S. Lewis has pointed out so insightfully that no man knows how bad he is. No person knows how bad they are until they have tried very hard to be good. You don't know how bad you are until you've tried very hard to be good. Have you ever kind of set out on that and said, I'm really going to try to be a good person. I'm going to work really hard at that. And it's only until you really commit yourself to that project that you begin to see the depth of how hard that really and truly is. Because again, if it's so easy to be good, if it's so easy to stop doing, then stop sinning, then do it, right? There's a, there's a great sketch from Comedy Central a number of years ago where Bob Newhart plays a psychiatrist whose only treatment is to tell people to stop it. They, they, they come in, they tell him their problems, he listens kind of thoughtfully, and then he's like, I've got two words, write these down. They're, they get their pen out, and then he says, stop it. And if it was so easy to stop sinning, if it was so easy to be transformed, on our own power, by the law, to be good on our own, why don't we just do it? Just stop it. Start being good. If it was that easy, wouldn't we already just follow through with all of our commitments and promises and responsibilities to ourselves and to others? But we don't. We don't do those things. Now, listen again to how Eugene Peterson phrases these, paraphrases these verses. This is so helpful. He says, If such is the case, is the law then an anti-promise, a negation of God's will for us? Not at all. Its purpose was to make obvious to everyone that we are in ourselves out of right relationship with God and therefore to show us the futility of devising some religious system forgetting by our own efforts what we can only get by waiting in faith for God to complete his promise. And then this is what is so good. For if any kind of rule keeping had power to create life in us, we would certainly have gotten it by this time. If the law could do it, we would have gotten it by this time. And yet we continue to struggle. We continue to break promises to ourselves and to others. So the law functions not only to reveal the problem, it also shows us that in our own power, we can't get life by it. So if in your life, you're trying to keep all of the rules, if you're trying to to be a good person on your own and you find that you are failing in that and you're despairing in that, actually rejoice because the law is doing what it's supposed to do. It's showing that in our own power, you can't do that. It's doing exactly what it's supposed to. It's showing you that you can't do it on your own. So third, the law shows us the problem. It shows us we can't fix it. And third, it it protects us until we receive the promise. And again, this is particularly true for God's people Israel before the coming of Jesus. It marked them out as unique among nations. It protected them until the promised Messiah Jesus came to fulfill the law and set them free. Again, Peterson continues in the message. He says, until the time when we were mature enough to respond freely in faith to the living God, we were carefully surrounded and protected by the Mosaic law. The law was like those Greek tutors, which you are familiar, who escorted children to school and protected them from danger or distraction, making sure the children will get to the place they set out for. The law points us to Jesus who fulfills the law, showing us our need for him. Okay, so I was thinking this week, how do we put all this together? I know this is kind of abstract, it's kind of out there. How do we put all this together? Well, think about about training wheels on a bike, you know, the, the bike, you get the bike first, right? The training wheels are an add-on that come after the bike. Your, your parents, when you're going, prop, they probably didn't give you a set of like training wheels and say, well, like roll these around for a little bit and we'll see how you do. And then maybe I'll give you a bike. No, the, no, the bike, the, the, the promise, the bike comes first. The training wheels are added on afterward. And the training wheels, though, they're added because of our weakness, our inability, right? We don't have the balance yet. We, we actually can't do what the bike needs us to do in order to, to, to enjoy it. And so we need the training wheels as a help. The training wheels, like the law, function to reveal first that we don't have the balance. They show us that we, we aren't truly bike riders yet. There's a weakness in us. And then they also preserve us, protect us from falling, but training wheels in and of themselves cannot produce balance, which is what you really need to ride the bike. They're a substitute for it. They, they protect us from falling while we're learning balance, but they can't create balance. This is exactly like the law. It shows us our need. It protects us from harm, but it can never bring life in of itself, just as training wheels can't bring balance. And... Mm add another piece to this, the whole point of training wheels is to get rid of them someday, right? They're not meant to be on there forever. They're temporary. They anticipate a moment when we will have the balance to be free to ride on the bike, to enjoy that. And this is Paul's whole point in Galatians. Jesus has taken the training wheels off. He's now there running alongside the bike with us, holding the back of the seat like your mom or dad when you learn to ride the bike. You don't need the training wheels anymore. And his point is if you're trying to go back to the law, it's like you're pushing Jesus away, saying, Jesus, let go of the bike and let me stop and put the training wheels back on. I'd rather do it that way. And Paul's saying that's utter foolishness. You have Jesus empowering you to live the life that he has called you to live. You don't need the training wheels. And to go back to that shows that you don't want him. You're not trusting him. So learn from the tutor, but always look to where the tutor is pointing you, to the only one who can give you balance, <laughs> the, the goodness and life that you need to live as you were created the life, the inheritance that only comes by promise. Only a promise can make you an heir. And those who are heirs, they believe the promise, they learn from the tutor, and finally, heirs celebrate the inheritance. Look at how Paul ends this chapter, the final verses of chapter 3. He writes this, so then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. We don't need the training wheels anymore. For Jesus, for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is, neither, there is no male nor female. And you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. See, now that Christ Jesus, our King, our Messiah, our Rescuer has come, we are no longer under the guardian. We are no longer under the law. We relate to God by faith. And through that faith, in the promise, we have become heirs. We are welcomed into this glorious inheritance, into this new family. We're going to talk a lot about, more about that next week, this idea of a new family that we've been adopted into. And this inheritance, it gives us a new unity. Paul says that we are all one in Christ Jesus. And yet, that unity does not erase our diversity. The, the gospel does not erase our uniqueness, but it opens up access, and it gives us a new primary identity, so, so when Paul writes there at the end of the chapter, there's no longer Jew or Greek, no longer male or female, he isn't saying that the destiny of humanity is some kind of monolithic, androgynous future. Not at all. In fact, when you look at the book of Revelation, the last book of the Bible that paints a picture of what God is going to do in the new heavens and new earth, it, it talks about multiple times every tongue and tribe and nation, this incredible diversity that God created that with his idea is going to be preserved and celebrated in the new heavens and new earth. So what does Paul mean, then, when he says no longer any male, female, Jew, Greek? His point isn't that those distinctions of maleness or femaleness, race, ethnicity, that those things no longer count, that they no longer have any purpose, that they disappear. Rather, his point is that they no longer count as an advantage or disadvantage to knowing God. You are an heir of God not because of your gender, not because of your ethnicity, not because of your pedigree, not because of your socioeconomic standing. You are an heir because of his promise to you, which means that that promise now becomes your primary identity. It doesn't erase your maleness or femaleness. It doesn't erase your race or ethnicity, but in a sense, it surpasses them. So, I'm not first and foremost a man who happens to be a Christian. I'm a Christian who is also a man. I'm not an American Christian. I'm a Christian who is also an American. I'm not a Gorman, first and primarily. I'm a Christian who's also a Gorman. My maleness, my Americanness, my, my Gormanness, those are all aspects of who I am, right? Those are all part of me. But the foundation on which they all sit and the roof that covers them all, the first and the last thing about me, the deepest and the highest thing about me, is that I am an heir because of Jesus' promise to me. I'm a child of God. I'm a Christian. That's my identity, that's my inheritance. So celebrate that inheritance. Embrace the unity that we have as brothers and sisters in Christ. Destroy the divisions that separate us within the family. All the while honoring the diversity, which is God's idea and is not erased by our Christianity, but is redeemed and enhanced by it. Only a promise can make you an heir. Because Jesus made and kept the promise. The promise to rescue us, the promise to always love us with an everlasting, never giving up love, we are rescued and saved. Because Jesus kept the promise, because Jesus was faithful to us even when we broke our promises to Him, because of His faithfulness, we can become heirs. Jesus' has made promises to us, he made the promise. He accepted the penalty of our promise breaking so that we could receive an inheritance by believing his promise alone. So now the only way to fail the promise is to not believe it. Have you ever thought about that? How do you fail a promise? There's lots of ways to fail a promise that you make to someone else. But the only way to fail a promise that someone is making to you is to not believe it, to reject it. Jesus, the most faithful one, has made a promise to you. And the only way to fail it is to not receive it, to reject it, to not believe it. Do you believe the promise? Do you really believe it? Do you believe that God loves you, that he wants you, that he will set you free to love him and enjoy him forever? Only a promise, only a promise can make you an heir. And in the communion moment that we celebrate together each week here at Brookside, it's a reenactment of that promise, a reaffirmation of that promise and a fresh opportunity for us to express our trust in the promise, to declare our belief in the promise, to declare that yes, we believe what God has said. And so it's that point to communion that we go to now.